0: Well, friends, please turn, if you will, in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a familiar passage this morning, the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. And before we begin, I just wanted to thank uh, Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. He's the uh, president emeritus of the seminary, and he's taught on this and preached on this in such a way that I'll never be able to hear it the same way again. You've probably heard sermons like that and it kind of gives you a new paradigm or way of understanding scripture. I won't be quoting him throughout. There is a place or two where I will but I wanted to give my brother and my father in the faith all due respect for um, having opened my eyes to some of the meanings of this text. It's a well-known story and sometimes it's easy to overlook or miss the main point. It asks a question in it about or it tells us really to go and love and Show mercy to others. If I were to ask you, covenant kids of this congregation, if I were to ask you, does Jesus want us to show love and mercy to others, he would say, yes, that's an easy one, Pastor Right? that's a softball. Of course he wants us to do that. And this passage has something to say about that for sure. But there's also something going on in the passage that we want to look at this morning. In the context in particular, the disciples are returning from a mini-mission that Jesus had sent them on and they had done, been able to do all kinds of wonderful things in his name. And when he comes back, when they come back and they're telling him all the things that he did, he, he's really telling them, hey, rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven, not necessarily that you were able to do all these things great, though they were. And then he's talking about the difference between those who come humbly to him and those who are wise in their own eyes and will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then here is this story, here is the situation where a lawyer stands up to test Jesus who is wise in his own eyes, in his own understanding. Jesus' parables aren't just telling something, they're doing something. Jesus is here. He is the king. The king has come. The Messiah has come. Something different and radical in redemptive history is happening because all of the promises are now being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so he comes bringing both judgment and bringing both, uh, bringing both judgment and salvation. So in the story, he's not just telling us to, to, to love others and to show mercy, though he is. Something's happening. Some people are being judged and some people are being saved, even in the telling of it or in the context of what's going on here. But let's hear the passage now uh, the, word of, the Word of God. Pay attention to it as such. We'll actually start with the returning of the 72 in verse 17. Luke 10, chapter 17. It says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this... That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, which will be represented by the lawyer in our story, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. He said to him, "What is written in the law? How do you read it?" And he answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself." And he said to him, "You have answered correctly; do this, and you will live." But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "Who is my neighbor?" And Jesus replied, And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearing. This morning, I'd like to look at this text in uh, three parts. First, there's a confrontation with the king. Second, there's a story or a parable from the king. And third, we see the compassion of the king. So first, a confrontation with the king, Jesus. Second, a story from the king. And third, the compassion of the king. And remember that Jesus isn't just telling a story, something's happening in the doing of it. He is here. The Savior has come. Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is standing before these people. He is the one who brings judgment. He is the one who brings salvation. He is the Messiah. And here, the first thing we notice is that there's a confrontation with the king, which throughout the Gospel of Luke has been building As there are certain people, certain groups of people that have been rejecting Jesus' rule. They've been questioning him. They've been plotting against him. They've shaken their fists at him and said, we do not want this man to rule over us. The war that started in the garden continues to go on. There's been a battle between the seed of the woman, uh, those who uh, believe and trust in the Lord, and the seed of the serpent, those who hate the Lord and his promises and his word. And here we see the battle continue. And so our text says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? A lawyer really, in this context, is a scribe. He's a student of the law. He's one to whom people turn for guidance and insight. He was thoroughly instructed in the Old Testament, extremely well-educated on these things. And did he stand up to ask Jesus a question because he was troubled in his heart and he wanted to understand something more fully? Was he wanting or sincerely asking a question? The text would tell us that he's not. It says that he wants to test him. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, the only other time that that word test is used is when it's used of Satan testing or tempting Jesus in the wilderness. If you were just to hear Luke read in one sitting, it would be striking to you that the only two times you hear these words are when Satan is testing Jesus and when this lawyer is testing Jesus. Luke's trying to make a connection that these two are similar. This lawyer isn't trusting Jesus. He isn't loving Jesus. He isn't really sincerely even asking this question. He wants to trip Jesus up. He wants to trap him. He wants to make Jesus look like a fool in front of these other people. He's acting like Satan. He's acting like his father, the evil one. He's going to try to trap him or get him to say something silly or embarrassing or against the law in one way or another to discredit Jesus. But note that Jesus quickly gets the upper hand, doesn't he? Jesus is nobody's fool. Jesus is nobody's pawn. Jesus is the one who's actually in control of the situation. The lawyer was hoping or thought that he was, but it's really Jesus, isn't it? He's the one who's in control of judgment. He's the one who's in control of salvation. He's the one who's in control of the whole situation. And so he asks the lawyer, he said, is what, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're a lawyer, right? You're an expert. What's written? Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This lawyer most assuredly would have had the passage that we're going to read memorized. It's probably something that he would have recited daily, if not weekly, in terms of memorizing the the scriptures and meditating upon it. They were called to do this regularly. And so here now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And that's really what he quoted back to Jesus, right? There's more to the text, though. It says, and these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And then he kind of goes on and on. But what I really want you to notice is jump down to verse uh, 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to a what, beloved? To a test. (laughs) This is what he's doing. This is what Luke is telling us he's doing. The lawyer stood up to test Jesus. And the very passage of the law that the lawyer read in defense of himself, he would have just continued going. If he would have continued quoting it, would have said, do not put the Lord your God to a test. And at that very moment, he's doing that. He's putting the Lord to the test. The weight of that is remarkable. He had quoted the part of the law that he thought he was doing well. He didn't quote the part of the law that oh, maybe wasn't going so well for him or that he didn't really understand his own heart or wasn't willing to look at his own heart on. This is revealing the character or the nature of the lawyer to us. And Jesus says, you're correct, really. Do that and you will live. He had asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Well, if you do that, you will live. If you do it perfectly, if you do it perpetually, if you do it always. The tables are really being turned here, aren't they? The lawyer was trying to trap Jesus, and Jesus now has turned the tables, and the lawyer's on the defensive. What must I do? Do what you just said. Do that, and you will inherit eternal life. And as you read the text, you can feel that the lawyer realize, realizes this confrontation really isn't going all that well for him, is it? And so, in a typical lawyer fashion, no disrespect to any lawyers, right? he tries to find a loophole. Well, who's my neighbor? Because he thinks if he can define neighbor in such a way that he can say, well, I've done that, then he's going to justify himself. He's going to be okay. So instead of recognizing the weighty matter of the law, he really hasn't done this. He really hasn't loved the Lord as God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because the Lord is standing before him and he's putting him to the test. Rather than pay attention to that and the weight of it, he's trying to get a very narrow definition of who his neighbor is. Convicted by Christ's words, he bypasses the weightier matter of loving God and loving his neighbor and tries to seek to identify him in such a way that he can pass. Dr. Godfrey, in commenting on this passage, said, Whatever else the law may be able to do, it cannot make us love our neighbors, especially if God demands that we count our enemies among them. There are few people in Scripture that are less loving, he says, than this lawyer. He doesn't love God. He doesn't love his neighbor. And the law can't make us love our neighbor, can it? Much like some of you may be like me and violate the speed limit now and then, right? If you see a sign that says speed limit 55 and you go 56 miles an hour, right? The, The speed limit can't make you obey it. It can't make you do it. You know at that point that you violated it. And the higher you go, the more likely you're going to get caught or in trouble in one way or another. But the law can't make you obey. The law can show us our need to obey. It can show us our failure to obey. But it doesn't give us the power in and of itself to be able to do those things. It just shows us what needs to be done. And this lawyer should be crushing under the weight of the law and the realization that he hasn't done these things and turning to Jesus, but he doesn't. And so the second thing we hear as we hear a story from the king. Jesus tells the familiar parable. He said that this man had gone on a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about a 17-mile trip, uh, the way that they would have gone in that day, and about a 3,300-foot drop through rocky country. It was well-suited for robbers and thieves. And it says that there was a priest and a Levite um, that would most likely be returning from their trip to Jerusalem. They had gone there to the temple to serve and now are returning home. And Jesus mentions a priest and a Levite for a specific reason. These are some of the people who have been at odds with him in the Gospel of Luke. They have been the ones who have been testing him and trying him and uh, plotting his death and shaking his fist saying we will not have this man rule over us. And a priest and a Levite ostensibly ought to be the people that you want to find you if you're lying half dead by the side of the road. They're, in essence, professional clergy. They're the people who are trained and called to be able to care for and help and protect and serve the most needy. But here we recognize that this priest and this Levite pass by this man who is laying on the side of the road. It says that they pass by on the other side. And again, this is not a random story, but it's really a judgment those who feel like they are entitled to the kingdom but don't come to Jesus they feel like they're entitled to the kingdom but don't listen to the word they feel like they're entitled to the kingdom but they don't obey they don't repent they don't recognize their sin they don't trust the Lord one theologian said they think that they are heirs of the kingdom or those who can inherit the kingdom through their doing But the king is standing before them, and they have consistently questioned him. They have mocked him. They have tried to trap him. They have undermined him. They have called him a liar. They had said that he is operating under the power of Satan, and they are plotting to kill him. That's a weighty situation. Many motives have been suggested for why the priest and the Levite didn't help him. Some think maybe that there was a fear of becoming unclean. So by touching a dying man, maybe they would have become unclean themselves. Maybe there's a hesitation to help a sinner, particularly an outsider, because the Samaritan was outside, he was different than, other than them. Maybe they were afraid of being robbed. Maybe the robbers were still in the area. However, the text really doesn't give us an answer, but the weight of the text still hangs there. The point is that nobody was there to help them, and what possible excuse could justify their refusal to help this man? What possible excuse could they give? The drama remains. This man is laying there half dead, bleeding to death. Is there anybody around who can help him? What's going to be done? And everything changes in the story when the Samaritan arrives, doesn't it? And Jesus uses the Samaritan for a particular reason as well. They were somewhat enemies of the Jews. They had a different law, they had a different Torah, they had a different temple, they had a different worship. And Jesus is noting that this Samaritan had compassion. The word that he used really brings out a strong sense of pity, a strong feeling of pity that compels one to act as well. And kids, you know what verbs are, right? Verbs are action words. Listen to all the acts uh, that this man does, that the Samaritan does. It says he went to him, he bound him up, he poured wine, most likely to disinfect his wounds and oil to soothe his wounds, he set him on his own animal, he brought him to the inn, he took care of him, he stayed the night, he paid for him, two denarii, probably two or two to four weeks worth of lodging. He instructed the innkeeper to continue to care for him, and if there's anything else, any other debts that he incurs, I'll pay for them, I'll care for them when he returns. Right? That's compassion, that's pity, that's love, that's mercy in action, isn't it? The extravagance of care that he extended to this dying man. And then Jesus asks one of the easiest questions, right? Which of the three do you think proved to be a neighbor? kids you get this right away right which one it couldn't be an easier question but note that the lawyer can't even bring himself to use the word samaritan he says the one who did or showed mercy he doesn't even say the samaritan this is revealing his heart the question was that he had asked was who is my neighbor And Jesus is now telling a story that verbally creates the picture or image to describe what a neighbor looks like. He is not defining a particular group, because perhaps one could define a neighbor in such a way that one could see themselves as keeping the law. Maybe if they were of my same race, or of my same educational um, prowess, of my same politics of my same socioeconomic status. If we could define it narrowly and small enough, he would think maybe I'm doing these things. But here, instead of giving a definition of neighbor, Jesus is showing a description of what a neighbor looks like. This is what it looks like to love and to show mercy and to care. And in the Gospel of Luke, he's not telling us, if you do this, you will be a disciple. He's saying, this is what disciples look like. How will you know if someone's a disciple? Well, they show love. They show mercy. They do these kind of things, don't they? It's part of being someone who's been touched by grace and mercy and by the love of God, that that's manifested in how they act as well. Jesus isn't providing a category. He's not providing a checklist. He's revealing a character, isn't he? And the character of this lawyer is being revealed. It's not that he needs new information. What he needs is a new heart. He doesn't love the Lord, and he doesn't love his neighbor. And it's not that he needs more law to tell him that. The law has already told him that. He could quote the law exceedingly well. It's that he didn't recognize the crushing weight of the law in evaluating his own sense of holiness before the Lord. What he needs is a new heart, which, by the way, is a new covenant reality, that we are given a new heart. But the last thing we want to look at, we had a confrontation with the king, we had the king's story, and then the compassion of the king. What does Jesus want us to learn from this? What does Luke want us to learn? What does the Holy Spirit want us to learn from this passage? Does he want us to love God and our neighbor? Of course he does. We were created to do so, and we were recreated to do so. Are we supposed to stop every person who is begging and give them money? Are we supposed to stop every, with every car along the road in need and help them? Every time we see someone in need, should we give to them extravagantly? Right? Certainly these things are worthy of our time and our reflection, but the primary reason of this text is to confront the lawyer with the law so that it reflects back on him implicitly, hey, how is that loving God and loving your neighbor thing going for you? And to recognize that he shouldn't rely on his works of the law and that he should flee to Christ who is standing before him. In our call to worship this morning, we heard the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus, come, come, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here he is, the second person of the Holy Trinity in the flesh, standing before this lawyer. And instead of clinging on or trying to define his own works or righteousness in such a way to make himself right, he should have recognized, I am in the presence of a holy God. Woe is me. I am undone. Forgive me. And cling to and run to Jesus. Dr. Philip Ryken, in commenting on this text, he said, As the scriptures say, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, we can never be saved by keeping the law, not because there is anything wrong with the law, but because there is something wrong with us. This was the obvious implication of what Jesus said to the lawyer. He was laying down an impossible challenge designed to drive the sinner to seek his Savior. He should have been crumbling under the weight of the law. He should have been despairing of his own works, both good and bad. He should have been listening to Jesus rather than testing Jesus. And he should have been begging for mercy as a sinner rather than seeking to justify himself as a saint. Right? He should have been begging for mercy as a sinner rather than seeking to justify himself as a saint. Friends, we are indeed called to be lovers and doers of mercy. But that is not how we inherit the kingdom or how we become disciples. That is a result or a response or a calling or a privilege, a blessing, a responsibility of inheriting the kingdom. How do we inherit the kingdom? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's interesting that the passage that the lawyer even quoted started off saying, Hear, O Israel. How does faith come, beloved? By hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. You already heard this morning. Your sins are forgiven. You are not under any condemnation. You are free. You are loved beyond your wildest imagination. And there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from that love. You are recreated into the image of the one who is love. How can you not go out and be merciful? How can you not go out and be gracious? How can you not go out and show that? Beloved, we above all people ought to be the most loving and the most merciful because we realize with how much grace and love and mercy we have been touched. It's Jesus' mercy and compassion for him that's leading him to Jerusalem to go to the cross even as he's giving this parable. He's on his way there right now He has set his face towards Jerusalem and was going there. It's Jesus is the one who has mercy. He is the one who saves. He is the one who's on his way to give his life for his neighbor, to give his life for his friend, to give his life for his people, to give his life for you. Insert your name here. To give his life for me. He is the one who does what is necessary to inherit eternal life. It's remarkable to think about that Jesus on the cross bore the penalty for all of our lack of mercy, for all of our lack of love towards God and towards our neighbor. We were guilty. We were condemned. We read that in Scripture today. But Jesus willingly went to pay the penalty for that. And for all of our hatred, for all of our enmity, for all of our lack of love, he paid the penalty for. He endured the penalty for us on the cross. And in addition, his life of perfect righteousness, his life of perfect obedience is credited to our account as if we had done it ourselves. It's remarkable to even think about. He's the one who does the law. He pays the penalty for our law breaking and he fulfills the law in perfect obedience for us. And so as we wrap this up, beloved, let me ask you which character in this story are you? Most of the time, some of us will think, Well, I can act like the Levite at time, I can act like the priest at time. Now and then you'll get someone that says, I'm the good Samaritan. I submit to you, you're the poor sap laying by the side of the road. (laughs) And so am I. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to help ourselves, nobody else around to help us. But a good Samaritan came and acted in mercy, and acted in pity, and acted in compassion, and provided everything that we need. He binds us up. He takes us with him. He provides for us. He promises that he will return. We're the ones that were laying dead by the side of the road and Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one who gives extravagantly that we may have all that we need for faith and for life in him. He's the one who calls us and says, come, come. Everyone who is weary and heavy laden I will give you rest. And friends, to those of you who have done that already this morning, then be comforted and be assured that your sins are forgiven and that you are not under any condemnation. You are free to go and to love and to show mercy, not for God's favor, but from God's favor. You are his now and always. And if you haven't yet, let today be the day of salvation. Where God is calling you, Jesus is calling you, come. Repent and believe. You will find the forgiveness of your sins. You will be declared righteous. You will have eternal life. You will be made new. He's calling us. He's calling us to come. And again, beloved, as those who have been touched by this remarkable and amazing grace and mercy, how could we not but go out and show that kind of love and mercy to others? Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this remarkable story. We thank you that you came to us, you sent your son to come to us while we were lying dead by the side of the road. And that you have saved us, that you have regenerated us, that you have brought us from death to life, that you have given us faith, that you have given us new hearts, that you have forgiven us, that you have justified us, that you have adopted us and that you are sanctifying us, conforming us more and more to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we pray that you would, Father. We pray that we would be lovers and doers of mercy, as those who have been so mercifully dealt with by you and your Son. We pray that we would come humbly before you, ready to receive everything that you have for us, and eager and willing to do your bidding. We pray that we would love you more dearly, that we would hear you more clearly, and that we would follow you more nearly every day. In Jesus' name, amen.